Good morning. It's good to be in the Lord's house this morning. It's good to have the word open. And I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer. And we're going to jump right in to Psalm 119. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful. We thank you for your many blessings. We thank you for your word of hope, your word of encouragement, your word of instruction, your word that rebukes us, but doesn't leave us there. You correct us. You instruct us in righteousness. You teach us about who you are. You show, you, in the, you show us in these pages a very real picture of how you operate. You give us a history record of your wonderful works. And Father, you've given to us a glimpse of who your son Jesus is in these pages. I pray that we would not miss Jesus as we read your word. Father, in these days ahead, I pray that we would be diligent to grow in our love for you and our love for your word. We thank you for this particular word from Psalm 119 and pray, Lord, your blessing upon it this morning. Those who have gathered here today, Lord, I pray that you would speak to them through your spirit. Challenging, convicting, encouraging, providing exactly what you know each one needs. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, some of you here have experienced this firsthand. Others have been a spectator, perhaps. Some of you here have the desire and the heart and the passion for this thing. Others of you would rather do something else. Some of you enjoy the discipline and the challenge that this brings, and others would rather not cross the threshold of this particular challenge. And some of you right now are going, what in the world is he talking about? I'm talking about a triathlon. A triathlon. Many of you here are probably familiar with a marathon. A marathon is 26.2 miles, I believe, of running. A triathlon is simply tripling your pleasure. Really, that's what it is. According to the World Triathlon Corporation, there are two primary events... There's what they call the half Ironman. Anybody in here ever done a half Ironman? Anybody? We don't have any Iron, Iron Man or women in here. Okay. Nobody's ever done this. I haven't either. And when I found out what they do, that's the reason I haven't done it. The half, what they do is they start out and they swim 1.2 miles in an open body of water. 1.2 miles. They get out of the water. They get on a bike. And they ride 56 miles on a bike. And they get off the bike, and then they proceed to run 13.1 miles. Now, that's the half. The full, if we do the math, the full Ironman, the half's not good enough for you. You can advance to the, to the full, and you can swim 2.4 miles. You can get out of the water, get on your bike, and ride 112 miles. Get off your bike, and then start running for 26.2, a full marathon. Anybody ready to sign up? No takers, huh? Well, whether you're running a marathon or taking part in a triathlon, there are a certain number of preparations that are needed. Would you agree? I mean, you don't just show up on the day of the race and expect to finish something like this. Learning how to swim needs to take place before the gun goes off to start the triathlon. It's probably not a good idea to have training wheels still on your bike if you've got to go 112 miles. And if most of the running that you've done prior to the race is simply running to the refrigerator to get a sweet snack, you might be in trouble with 26 miles staring you in the face. Oh, and by the way, a good number of those 26 miles are are being run uphill. 
certain preparations are needed. When we think about a triathlon, training, a training regimen has to be in order, doesn't it? There needs to be conditioning. Your body needs to be conditioned for the race. Proper stretching, proper weight training, proper nutrition. Nutrition leading up to the race and even the day of the race. Making sure that your body is getting what it needs to be getting. Proper equipment. You need to make sure you have a, a decent bike. It's going to be able to withstand the rigors of what you're doing. A helmet. Safety measures. Bike accessories. What if you have a flat tire? Do you know how to fix it? Swim gear. Comfortable footwear. Do you think footwear would be important running 26 miles? Yeah. Equipment's very necessary. It's important we prepare for that. Proper rest leading up to the race. All these things are preparations. But you know, as you think about this, and even when all the preparations are tended to meticulously, the race, due to the extreme difficulty level, is going to hurt. The race is going to hurt. It's going to be painful at some point along the 140-mile journey. That's the full Ironman length, 140 miles. It's going to hurt somewhere along there. You know, many people initially, they train to complete the race. They, they train to complete it. They, they train simply to cross the finish line. What does it take to get to the finish line? You know, I was reminded of this. I was thinking about this. Uh, it was a flashback. Uh, eighth grade year. The next to last meet of the year, I'm running track. I'm running the 400 meters. By the way, the 400 meters is one time around the track. I like that kind of race. I can do that. And on my eighth grade year, I remember the next to last meet, it was a home meet, and I tied the school record 56.6. That was the record. I tied it. So the last meet of the year, it's an away meet. We're at Craig Middle School, which is no longer in existence. Tells you how old I am. And we're out there on the track. And I'm in lane one. And our coach put one of my teammates out in lane eight. For those of you that know a little bit about track, we start in the 400 meters in a staggered start. So that means I'm here and my teammates way out there starting. I can see them. And the gun goes off. And 300 meters into it, I'm just, I'm chasing my teammate. Now, unbeknownst to me at the time, I found out afterward that this happened to be, this was our best sprinter. I did know that. But I didn't know that the coach had told him to run as fast as he can run for as long as he can run to help me get the record. That was the objective. And so I'm running and he's running and I'm thinking and as I'm running, is he going to slow down? Because he kept on running. And at 300 meter mark, he just like hit a wall. <laughs> he literally stopped at 300 meters. And my legs were rubber coming in the last 100. And I crossed, I was tired and the person came up to me, showed me my time. My time was 54 four. Beat it by 2.2 seconds. As painful, as tired as I was, I was rejoicing. It was all worth it. The hard work, everything was worth it. But you know, I won the race. I crossed the finish line faster than I'd ever crossed it before. Why? How? Because I had my eyes on someone out in front of me. And you see, people, it's important. When we think about getting to the finish line, we will never effectively get to the finish line in our life unless and until we keep our eyes Fixed upon the one ahead of us. And as we know, that would be Christ. That's how we run the race. That's how we get to the finish line. Is by looking unto Jesus. The author and perfecter of the faith. You know, and we're talking here in, in Psalm 119. But I think it's important for us to understand. As we're speaking to tri uh, this triathlon. And the training regimen. And preparations. There are trials that we're going to encounter. We've called this, this series Trial Athlon. Endurance to the finish line, even when life hurts. Because I would, I would imagine that if we took time and went around, each one of you could testify that either right now or sometime in the past, or it looks like it's going to happen sometime coming up, something has hurt in your life. Life's hurting. 
There are some things that you could right now probably pinpoint, put your finger on, and say, this is hard. Right now where I'm at, this this is hard. How am I going to finish through this one? How am I going to get through this one? James 1 talks about trials and speaks about the one who endures to the end. Verse 12, chapter 1 of James says, When he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And we also see that in 1 Peter chapter 1, the Holy Spirit tells us there of what's to come as we cross the finish line of faith. There's waiting for those in Christ. Listen to what's waiting on the other side. Listen. An inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, does not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. Crossing the finish line in this life, you will receive what Peter says here, the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And coming out of our study this summer, we know that Paul himself knew something about running this race, what this running is all about. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have what? I have finished the race. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Finally, finally, he says, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, or James calls it the crown of life. He calls it the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. Listen, it's not just for Paul. He says, not only to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That crown of righteousness awaits. Are you desiring to finish the race set before you, friends? Finishing the race involves a fight, but it's deemed a good fight. It's a good fight. It's worthwhile. Why? Because it's for Jesus' sake that we run. And finishing the race involves keeping hold of the faith along the way as well. The faith is not maligned or profaned along the journey, but it's guarded and it's protected and it's cherished. And so the question is, will you endure all the way to the finish line? And before you sit there and you nod your head in agreement and go, yes, I'd like to point out some things that we all have in common as it pertains to these trials. And the first thing is that trials are a part of your race and they're a part of mine. Trials are a part of your race. James chapter 1 verse 2 tells us to consider it pure joy, not if you encounter, but what? When. When you encounter them. Trials are a part. Number two, trials are meant by God to produce patience and perseverance in you. These things can best be learned through trials. Perseverance learned through trials. Number three. Through trials, God is working on you. God is working on you, desiring that you become complete and mature. Trials are used by God to sanctify his children, to grow them in Christ's likeness, to enable them to see what it is to be a partaker of his holiness. And four, trials. And this is, this is maybe a stumbling block for a lot of us. Trials will require sacrifice. Trials may prove costly. Some may be severe in nature. And Peter describes it as a testing through fire. Now none of us here relish the thought of passing through fire. But consider that in doing so, God is testing the very genuineness of your faith. He's shown you what's on the other side of life's finish line. But he's also placed before you these warning signs of the trials to come in the meantime. So let it be said of us, just as it was said of Paul at the end of his life, I have finished the race God has given me. I've finished it. And we look at Psalm 119. Psalm 119 has become my favorite psalm. And I turn to it quite often. Because it serves as nourishment for my soul. It's it's sort of like washing over me time and time again. These foundational truths of loving God and loving his word. Commentator Albert Barnes, he he writes uh, describing this big picture of Psalm 119. 
He says this psalm is so applicable to the people of God at all times. So listen to what it says here. So fitted to strengthen the mind in trial. This Psalm 119, he says, is so fitted to strengthen the mind in trial. Alexander McLaren writes in his commentary about Psalm 119 that he says there's one thought that pervades the entirety of Psalm 119. And it's the surpassing excellency of God's law. What we know is his word. The psalm is the longest of the 150 psalms. It's a unique kind of poetry. Keep in mind the genre that we're in. Psalms fits in with Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, right? Job is in there as well. Song, those, those are all categorized, if you will, under the umbrella of books of poetry in the scripture, okay? And in light of that, it's important to, to even put forward as you look in your Bible and you see where you're at in Psalm 119. You see that just under Psalm 119, there's this funny looking symbol, it might look like a fancy N or an X to some people. And then next to it, it says um, A-L-E-P-H. Do you see that in your Bible? A-L-E-P-H is Aleph. That symbol is actually the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And if you keep looking at Psalm 119, you see at the end of each eight verses, eight, they're, they're separated into eight verse segments or stanzas. Okay, And, and there's, there's what looks like Beth in the English. It's actually Beit in the Hebrew Okay, it, the Hebrew alphabet is a representative for each stanza in Psalm 119. And it's beautiful poetry in this regard. If you were to look at, at the Hebrew Bible, in the Hebrew Bible what you'll see is that the first eight verses in the Hebrew Bible, every single one of those verses begin with the letter Aleph. If you go to verses 9 through 16, every single verse begins with Beit. If you go to the next set of eight verses, every single one of those verses begins with the next letter, which is Gimel. And on and on and on. All 22 stanzas are written that way. It's an incredible piece of poetry, if you will. Obviously, it's much more than that, but it is poetry. It fits in the genre of poetry, and it's written masterfully well. The significant point of Psalm 19 is not how it's written... But the masterful part is that it contains a masterful God and it contains a masterful emphasis upon his word. So when we look at Psalm 19 and we connect what we're talking about with the trials, I think just as preparations are in order to run a triathlon, so too the child of God is to spend his days preparing to cross the finish line of life. Enduring the trials that inevitably come requires a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and a firm hold on the truths found in God's word. And so Psalm 119, in short, is about a man of God professing his love for God and his love for God's word. That's Psalm 119. If we were to summarize Psalm 119, there it is. It's a man of God, the psalmist, a man of God professing his love for God and his love for God's word. Okay? And in light of that, Knowing the big picture of Psalm 119, this ought to, over the course of these next several weeks, stir each one of us here to draw near to God and to seek Him in His Word daily. That's the idea. That's the hope. A few questions up front for us to consider from the text. As it pertains to running the race marked out for you, have you, to this point in your life, been running the race marked out for you with God's blessings in mind? Have you been running in such a way to seek his blessing? Have you sought to run with endurance, knowing for whom you're running? Or have you stopped along the way, decided to go a different way, because it's too hard? Remember, life is going to be hard. It's part of it. It's part of it, but as we're going to see, we don't have to go through it alone. That's the good news. He, he's going to be with us. He's going to be right there alongside of us. He's going to be strengthening us to get through the trial. Have you considered that the alternative to seeking God's blessing in your life? What's the alternative to God's blessing? God's what? Curse. I mean, we see that in Deuteronomy, right? The cursing, blessings and curses contrasted. I think it's important we understand 
if we're not running and seeking after God's blessings in this life. There's not a neutral zone. There's no neutral zone. Don't think for a moment that if, if you're not walking in the ways of the Lord, that you can just kind of hang out in the middle territory, middle ground, and be okay with God. No. As we're going to see, that's not an option. It's not an option. I, I didn't make that up. God's word is going to make that very clear here in just a moment. So we see here in verses 1, 2, and 3. I'd like to read 1, 2, and 3. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep. Oh, that's an important word here. If you write in your Bible, you might underline or mark the word keep. It's found in verse 2. It's found in verse 4. It's found in verse 5. It's found in verse 8. When it's repeated, it must be pretty important. And there's some things here that we need to keep a hold of. Okay? Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. Now the psalmist begins Aleph. Aleph is the first stanza of Psalm 119. He begins not just Aleph, but he begins the entirety of the psalm by posting the objective right up front. I love this. He proclaims a blessing upon the one who follows God and his word. Blessed are. Blessed are. That's how the first two verses begin. Blessed. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. The undefiled in the way. The in the way, it describes the race that's before us, the journey of this life. And the undefiled speaks to those who are blameless. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about people like Job and, and people like Noah and people like Daniel. Those in the scripture who were, at least for a time in their life, if not the entirety, were blameless. Blessed are the undefiled in the journey here on earth. Blessed are those who walk or traverse in the law of the Lord. And I was thinking about this and thinking about the journey that we all are on. And, and blessed are those who get up on Monday morning and walk with God. They get up on Tuesday and they walk with God. Wednesday, they walk with God. Thursday, no different. They walk with God. Friday, the weekend horn sounds, but they're still walking with God on that day. And Saturday might be your day off, but not for the one seeking to live in God's blessing. Saturday, he's working for God as well. And Sunday, his heart resonates as he considers the joy of gathering with the saints. Just as the psalmist says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go in to the house of the Lord. You see, blessed by God is the one who makes the journey day by day according to God's word. It's always before him. In verse 2, he says, blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. Now, there are two blessings right here in verse 2 I want you to see. The first blessing is attached to the one who keeps God's testimonies, his word. By the way, when we go through some of these stanzas in Psalm 119, we're going to see repeated time and time again. In fact, almost every verse, every verse has got something in there about God's word. God's word, God's ways, God's testimonies, God's judgments, God's precepts, God's law. Okay? He's using all of those words. Keep in mind that all of those words, uh, this is a genre, it's poetry. But if we could just be so simplistic and just say that he's talking about God's word. Okay? That's what he's talking about. But he comes at it and he keeps talking about it from different angles and uses different words. We see it even here at the beginning in Psalm 119, the first eight verses. The word keep, verse 2. One writer says that that word there generally indicates the action of carefully watching over a particular object so that the object is preserved or protected. Carefully watching over a particular object so that that object is preserved or protected. So the word keep here has in mind to guard or to watch over. So to keep his testimonies would be likened to a sentry, a watchman. Carefully on the lookout, diligently seeking to preserve and protect God's truth. Friends, 
This is something much needed in the day that we live in, is it not? We have got to guard and watch over these truths because what we've been noticing of late, maybe for quite a while now, is what the psalmist elsewhere would say, there's been quite a firing away at the foundations. It's important we're guarding these truths. Jim Cimbala in his book called Storm, he cites some disturbing statistics about our nation's biblical literacy. In a report done in American Bible Society's State of the Bible 2013 report said that two out of three believe the Bible contains everything a person needs to live a meaningful life. Now that may sound good on one hand, but only one out of five, 21%, actively read the Bible at least four times a week. Even among churchgoers who believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, only 20% say they think about it during the day. Only 20% think about God's word throughout the day. God has spoken to us through his word, but fewer, it seems, are taking the time to listen. The storm, I believe, has hit, hit, hit land. It's here. You know, it's not just in a book. I, I think the, the storm has hit. It's here. Bible literacy is quite low. All the more reason to keep his testimonies, to guard and watch over his precious truths, teaching them with all diligence to our children. The gospel truth is being shot at. Foundations are crumbling. They're being targeted. And we need to guard the gospel truth. We need to keep it with us. We need to keep it in us. As you walk in the way. Well, there's a second blessing, I believe, here in verse 2. There's a blessing to those who seek the Lord God with their whole heart. Now, these two blessings, I believe, go hand in hand you're probably not inclined to keep God's testimonies if you don't love God. Probably not all that concerned with his word if you don't have a relationship with him. And it's hard to seek the Lord God apart from keeping his testimonies. They go hand in hand. 1 John 2 verse 4 says, He who says, I know him, He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. You are what author and pastor Craig Groeschel calls in his book, a Christian atheist. What's a Christian atheist? You believe in God, but you live as though he didn't exist. You believe in him, but you live. Your life that gets lived out, it's lived out in a way as though he really doesn't exist. Does that describe you this morning? Notice in verse 2 that there's a certain way the Lord is to be sought. With the whole heart. You know, I was going back and I was thinking about the triathlon. And I really don't know of anyone who would run a triathlon and go into it half-heartedly. You know anybody who would do that? Sign up to go into a triathlon. I'm going to swim two, two and a half miles. I'm going to bike 112, and I'm going to run 26 miles, but I'm going to just do it half-heartedly. You know anybody who might do that? I don't. How is it then we think for a moment that seeking God himself this great God, this great king, this great creator. How can we think, how, can, how do we even think about seeking him with half-hearted devotion? Listen, too many people today are seeking God for personal agendas, personal wish lists. How often do you seek the Lord to just hear from him? How often, how regularly are you meeting with him, desiring just to know his heart and just to enjoy him? Jesus called his followers to love the Lord your God with what? All of your heart, 
all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. Love God with all that you've got. That's the message. No half-hearted followers. You put your hand to the plow and don't look back. That's the picture. And you go forward. You walk with him, empowered now by his good spirit abiding within you. 2 Chronicles 15, 2, the prophet shows up to Asa and says, The Lord is with you, Asa and Judah, while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. That's the promise. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Blessing comes to the one who keeps his testimonies and seeks him with a whole heart. Notice the two things that are talked about in verse 2. Keeping his testimonies, seeking him. Keeping his testimonies, his word, and seeking him. Verse 3. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. So here, here's, here's a, like an addendum. This is like a, attached onto the end. The blessed. They, they also do no iniquity. In other words, they don't get sidetracked with wickedness. They don't turn aside to perversity. They don't dabble in hidden things that they know they ought not be dabbling in. But instead they walk in his ways. In other words, the the blessed by God, they don't get thrown off course in their journey. Proverbs chapter 4, 14 and 15 is helpful here. Do not enter the path of the wicked. And do not walk in the way of evil. Listen, you can't walk in the way of evil and walk in the way of the Lord at the same time. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it and pass on. That's the instruction. Hey, that's great instruction, by the way. That's really good instruction. To do this takes discernment. It takes wisdom. It takes a daily watchfulness toward God's word. It takes a wholeheartedness toward God himself. The psalmist has just described the way of God's blessing. And just in case any are ready to pursue a different course, because it's too hard, look at the statement in verse 4. Wow. You know, studying this, this, this verse, this stanza this week, verse 4 was just jumping off the page. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. The psalmist has essentially closed the door on alternative ways of living. If we're following Christ, following the Lord. For the one professing God's name, he says, God's commanded you to keep his precepts diligently. I was reminded about the coach who tells his player how to run a certain play. He gives him instruction on how he wants him to do this. Or the boss at your workplace comes to you and says, Hey, this is how we're going to operate here. I need you to do this. Or the parent in the household is instructing his child on what's expected here in the home. How much more the Lord God when he speaks? The psalmist brings to the forefront something that I believe is largely missing in our day, even among followers of Jesus. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Question, does God have a right to command us and call the shots in our lives? I think many of us would would be real quick to go, yeah, he does. But there again, do we live our lives as though he really does? On what basis has he commanded us to keep his precepts? Well, let me give you a couple things to think about and consider about God. First of all, he is God. He's the creator. He's the king. He's our Lord. He's the potter. We're not. He's the great judge. There are many others we could give. That will suffice for now. Secondly, his word that he's given to us is the truth standard. 
Jesus, right before he goes to the cross in John 17, 17, is praying to the Father to sanctify them by the truth. And he says, your word is truth. This is the truth. He's given to us his truth. Third, his desire is to sanctify us. To sanctify us, that really means to set us apart for himself. To sanctify is to make holy. See, God's desire for his children is to set us apart that we might be holy like he's holy. That we might be partakers of his holiness. Okay? But we also need to remember that he's got great love toward us. He's commanding us because he loves us. He's not some dictator in the sky calling the shots just because he thinks it's a good idea. His commandments are given out of love, friends. So here's what all this means. Not keeping his precepts diligently means we have perhaps a wrong view of who God is. Some of us in here may think we're God, he's not. Some of us may not ever verbalize that, but by our actions, by the way we live, we live that way. We live as though, I got this one. Don't need your help here, God. Not keeping his precepts diligently means that we devalue the inestimable worth of his word. I got this one. Don't need your word. Not keeping his precepts diligently means we have no need for his sanctifying work to be done in us. I'm as sanctified as I'm going to get, Lord. Thank you. See, we, we bump up against, in our life, we bump up against something that's hard, and we, we decide instead of working through the hard thing with the Lord, we decide to turn. We abort that mission. We go somewhere else because it's too hard. We fail to understand that hard is not always a bad thing. Hard can mean sanctifying work that needs to be done in your life. Not keeping his precepts diligently means we've forsaken our first love and we've decided it best to go our own way. That God, in a sense, doesn't really know what I need or that he really doesn't love me at all. Here again, we're faced not with simply obeying his precepts, but how? How do we do it? Diligently, faithfully, constantly. We are to be fully consumed, absorbed, preoccupied with God and his word. The psalmist says in Psalm 1 verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates how often? Day and night. Day and night. Think for a moment of some of the things that you're pursuing diligently in this journey. What are you pursuing diligently right now in your life? Job, maybe? Hobby? Bank account? Growing your bank account? Your children's activities? Your education? Your exercise? You can fill in the blank, whatever that might be for you. You're pursuing diligently. The psalmist is teaching us something right here in verse 4. One who follows the Lord is commanded to keep his precepts diligently. That deserves more than a nod of the head. It deserves more than an amen. It deserves our undivided attention. And it demands, of course, correction. It's not acceptable to God that we know about his way of blessing. Verses 1, 2, and 3. Through the psalmist, God is teaching us what it means to follow him. When God commands us to something, we respond with obedience and a spirit of humility. Yes, Lord, I will follow. Think what this would look like in action. Think about a household who walked this out. Think about a church that walked this out. Together. New creations walk like new creations. They're different. Simbala, in his book, he, he cites another disappointing statistic here. 
And he's talking about personal transformation and how rare it is today. He says in the 2012 Barna report, 46% of churchgoers, 46% of churchgoers said that their life had not changed at all as a result of church going. Three out of five, 61%, could not remember a significant new insight gained by attending church services. And a third of those who have attended church in the past have never felt God's presence while in a congregational setting. That's pretty amazing to think about that. The conclusion of the study was this. The overwhelming majority of our ministries are not producing much fruit in the form of converted, changed lives. Now, before we point the finger of blame somewhere, perhaps the core of the problem is right here. Right here. Heart. The heart. We've not been keeping his precepts diligently, friends. There are no programs. There are no great things that can be done. They're going to bring about transformation in our lives unless and until our hearts are tended to diligently. Somehow we've, we've grown dull and we've grown weary in bearing fruit for the Lord. Do we think that, that God is going to somehow uh, impose himself on us to bear much fruit? Is that how God works? He's going to, boy, he's going to just make you bear fruit but just because he likes you. It's not how it works. Are we waiting on God to change us? And all the while we have no intentions really of keeping his precepts diligently. Have you stumbled into thinking that you like what God has to offer, but you'd prefer not to obey his commandments? If we're professing his name, what I see in the text is we don't have the option here. We don't have the option to decide whether or not we're going to obey his commandments. By the way, 1 John tells us that his commandments are not burdensome. It ought to be a joy and delight. The psalmist tells us that God has commanded us to keep his precepts diligently with the whole heart. Look at the next two verses. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. Oh, I hear his heart here. Even the way it begins. Oh, it's almost like a groaning. Oh, oh. We've looked at God's blessing. We've looked at God's command. Here we see man's weakness. Man's weakness. The psalmist recognizes the way of God's blessing. He even knows what God commands of him. But closely connected to that is a personal heartfelt testimony of his sin. And I believe verses 5 and 6 describe both. Listen, I think it describes both an acknowledgement of what is absent in his life. And yet what is strongly desired in his life. There's some implications here. I believe, one, his life path is not consistently directed toward keeping God's statutes. I think we see that evident in verse 5. And yet there seems to be a longing to walk in his ways all the time. Can you hear the psalmist's heart cry here? Oh, that my ways were directed to keep his statutes. Why am I doing the very thing that I don't want to do? And the things that I aim not to do, I find myself doing. That sounds a lot like Romans 7. That's what I'm hearing a little bit here as I read this psalm. Man's weakness is his sin. And yet, God, out of his great storehouse of love and mercy, chose to take care of our sin problem once and for all, didn't he? Listen, the text is not advocating try harder. The text is teaching you another foundational truth for walking in his way this is so important you're weak in the flesh 
but he is strong and always strong. You're unable, you're incapable apart from God's spirit in you. You cannot keep the law of God on your own, but what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh at the cross that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk how? According to the Holy Spirit. I didn't make that up. That's in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. That's how we fulfill the law. In fact, James chapter 2, verse 10 tells us that for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. It seems like the psalmist here, as we read verses 1 through 8, seems like he's stumbled in at least one point. And he's expressing his need to be directed in God's ways and mentions being ashamed when he looks into all of God's commandments. He's ashamed. Anyone here ever experienced shame? He's ashamed when he looks into all of God's commandments. Friends, the word properly read will do this to us. It will... A Hebrew writer talks about what this will do. It will cut us. It will penetrate deeply to our core. It will reveal our thoughts, our actions, our motives. And it's going to shine a spotlight on our sin. And our need then for repentance. The Spirit's ministry, we need to remember that the Spirit's ministry in our life involves and includes convicting men and women of sin. That's one of the things the Holy Spirit does. Convicts us of sin. I believe he's ashamed, the psalmist that is, he's ashamed when he looks into the word because he's recognizing what it says. And at the same time, he's realizing that his life isn't measuring up to what this says. And he's ashamed because he's a follower of the Lord. Do we treat the word that way? Do we see what it says and then open our life to what it says and go, Oh, I'm so far from that. Or do we open it up, see what it says, and try and rework what it says to make it fit who we are? Or do we open it up and we see what it says and we slam it shut immediately because we're convicted and we don't like to be convicted and we just rather walk our own way? So now we're at a point where he's, and us, the listener, the reader, we're left with a decision. In light of my weakness, in light of my sin problem, what's the next step here? Now what? Try harder? Try a new Bible study method? Try praying longer? Try reading more each day? From his word? No, I don't think that's the the solution. I believe it has nothing to do with stepping on that performance treadmill. You think about a treadmill? If you get on a treadmill and you push the go button, what's it going to do? That conveyor belt, right? A little conveyor belt just starts moving forward. And if you're not ready, you'll just get, you'll, you'll, you'll get knocked off the thing. But it's just something that's going to keep going in a cycle. And some of us, feel like we can just hop on the, the treadmill sort of like in a performance fashion as though you could pull off some great performance. God, I got one for you. Wait, here it is. I got some great performance for you that I'm going to achieve. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, God, you're immediately going to be pleased with me. I think some of us think that way in terms of performance. What the, what the psalmist says in verse 5 is this, this thing that he's been lacking. Obviously, he's lacking something. There's something in his life he's not, he needs directing to keep God's statutes. So what is it we do when we arrive at this point? Do we just throw in the towel? Do we call it quits? What's our next step? I believe the Bible has given to us direction. We've already talked about this many a time in this past summer, but it applies right here and now. First course of action. Repent of your sin. 
Repent of your sin. Flee sin. Second course of action. Turn to God in faith. Pursue God and his word with a whole heart. Third course of action. Do works befitting repentance. Walk in his ways. Now the fact that the psalmist is ashamed when he looks into all the commandments of God reveals, I think, a couple things. First of all, it reveals a vulnerability. There's a vulnerability here. Now there's a lot of us in here that don't like to be vulnerable. We don't like to be transparent. We like for people to think something much better of us than what we really are. Vulnerability scares us. Because we might be afraid that someone might not like us if they knew this about us. I can't tell them this. Vulnerability, transparency. The psalmist is that as he stands before God. But I think there's also something else here as he is ashamed when he looks into the commandments of God. It reveals his heart condition. This is so important. He realizes his sin in light of God's perfect law. And and the psalmist is helping us to see the importance of a soft, tender heart before the Lord. See, when sin no longer bothers you, that is a problem, friends. Red flags, siren, alert, alarm. Walking in sin and not doing anything about it is far from walking with the Lord. Even in a gathering this size, I would imagine that there are some here today who are walking in sin. You're here today and you know it. You're walking in sin and you are okay not doing anything about it. That's a problem. Not because Steve said so. Because God said so. You cannot walk in his ways unconcerned about sin. A follower of the Lord is receptive to what the Lord has to say. Listen, and opens each area of his life to the examining eye of God. And when all of your life, all of your life is available for God to examine. And when there's there's an openness to course correction. Let me ask you a question. When that happens, what is it that God's going to consistently point at in your life? What, What needs to be cut off in your life? What needs to be plucked out in your life? See, a hard heart. Not a soft one, but a hard heart will continue feeding his own desires. A hard heart will habitually feed his own desires and habitually doing so leads to habitual sin. Habitual sin leads to death. James chapter 1, 14 to 16 tells us that. Psalm 32 verse 5 gives us a wonderful picture of what David did. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you, God. And my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And look what happened. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. God forgave him. You look back at Psalm 119. And you see those first three verses. The way of God's blessing. And you see God's command. And in five and six you see man's weakness. You look at the next two verses. I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. We'll stop right there. I'd like to speak to man's resolve. Man's resolve. Man's weakness. Man's resolve. Notice twice, verse 7 and 8. I will. I will. I will. These are I will statements. And you know, on a cursory read, it sounds like he's bound and determined to just try harder. But context from verse 5 has already shown us his desire for help in that he sees a discrepancy in his ways and God's ways. He's resolving, what's he resolving to do? Worship and obey. He's resolving to engage his whole heart. 
He's resolving to hold on to God's statutes. I will reflects the desire in his heart. You see, there are some of us in here today who have never said that to God. I will. I will. I will. It's always been in your life, maybe. Yeah, perhaps, maybe. Uh, if I get around to it. I will. Obedience. Praise will be sent forth when he learns God's righteous judgments. That's what the text says in verse 7. So instead of residing in shame over his sin, the psalmist is going to praise God when he learns more of his ways. Listen to this. Barnes in his commentary said, The more we know of God, the more we shall see in him to praise the, the larger our acquaintance and experience with God, the more our hearts will be disposed to magnify his name. Now, think of all that there is to be learned of God. Quite an exhaustive subject, thinking about God. In fact, one writer said that learning about God is deemed treasures yet unexplored. It tells me that we'll never run out on empty. We're never going to run on empty as it pertains to things to praise God for. The psalmist says, I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. But we need to understand that the psalmist resolve alone. His resolve alone wouldn't be sufficient. That's so important. We can't just say, I'm resolving, I will on its own. We've got to add something to the resolve. Look at how this stanza ends. Another O statement. Really, I believe in many ways this is a prayer. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. And here I see a combination of two things. We see man's resolve previously now coupled with man's dependency or God's presence. You see, the psalmist understood that on his own he couldn't do it. He had a desire to follow the Lord, but he understands at the same time he needs God's presence in his life if he's going to keep these commandments with his whole heart. Barnes goes on, he says, the psalmist's confidence or his resolve that he would keep the commandments of God was based on the prayer that God would not leave him. Oh, that you would not be utterly forsaken. See, there's a, a very clear principle here that man needs God to walk in his ways. Man needs God to walk in his ways. Without his presence with me and in me, I'm empty. Jesus says in John's Gospel, chapter 15, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. With God's power, we're called to be witnesses to Jesus. Acts 1.8, we've been learning about that. We need his power in us to be effective witnesses. Charles Bridges, as he's writing about this psalm, he writes here, he says, he who commands our duty... Verse 4, right? He commanded our duty. He who commands our duty perfectly knows our weakness. And he who feels his own weakness is fully encouraged to depend upon the power of his Savior. And he goes on and he says that we stumble or advance in this race, in this journey. We stumble or advance as we lean upon the arm of flesh or upon an almighty Savior. I was reminded there of the hymns. The arm of flesh will what? Fail you. I was reminded of the other hymn. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. But wholly lean on whom? Jesus name. So the psalmist here has provided a look at the path of blessing before us. Here, here's what a man's life blessed by God looks like. Verses 1, 2, and 3. And he's not only shown the path of blessing, but he's made it abundantly clear that God commands us to walk in his path. He commands us to keep his precepts. And the psalmist then is quick to admit his own weaknesses and lay his own sin before this holy God. And psalmist resolves to praise God and to keep his precepts. But he does so understanding his need for God's presence. 
For apart from the hand of God, he cannot. And he pleads for God not to forsake him. There's a man in need of a savior here in the text. He needs God's presence to walk in the path of blessing. He needs God near him that he might keep his precepts with the whole heart. He needs God with him to serve as his strength in weakness. He needs God's encouraging word to keep his resolve burning fervently for the Lord. And some of you today need to stop with the charade. Today's a good day to stop. Come clean before God. Hear what the psalmist has to teach us. Some of you need to climb off the performance treadmill, perhaps, and realize God's strength in your weakness will carry you forward. A spirit of humility and vulnerability opens the door for God's grace to be experienced. And the psalmist, I believe, is not the only one here in need of a Savior. Do you find yourself here today? In need of a Savior. Are you ready to walk with Him as opposed to walking alone in the flesh? Know that you will never please God operating in the flesh. Romans 8 verse 8 tells us that. Your sin, your your falling short has been paid in full. It's good that you would know that. God began that reconciling work many years ago at the cross through His Son Jesus. And the call has always been, look to the sun, look to the sun and live. Remember the bronze serpent that was raised up on the pole? That bronze serpent came back up in the discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And he used that as the metaphor for Christ. Look to the sun and live. You see, crossing the finish line in this life will be a joy. I can't wait. We have a treasury of blessings awaiting us. But in the meantime, walk in the way of God's blessings. Look to the sun now and start living now. It's a whole new way of living. And it brings God great glory when you spend all of your days living for Him. So who's in? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this powerful word. A word I believe, Lord, you have given to those who profess your name. Father, where we've grown dull and weary, discouraged, where the fire has almost burnt out, I pray that through your spirit you would Bring about a mighty wind through this place. Renew, refresh, remind us of your word. Remind us we can't do this on our own. Remind us of your great strength and power. Remind us of your great truths. Remind us always of who you are. Wake us up in the morning with the reminder of your presence with us. And I pray that we would walk and be diligent to walk in the way of your word, that we would be about keeping your testimonies. We would do so with the whole heart, that we would not get sidetracked by iniquity, by wickedness, by perverseness, but we would walk in your ways, that we would take to heart the commandment set before us here in your word to keep your precepts diligently, And Father, I pray that we would recognize, as the psalmist did, our own weaknesses. 
and bring our own weaknesses, bring our own sins in the light of your word. Pray that they would be exposed. And that, Lord, as they're exposed, as we are vulnerable before you, as we have a heart that is soft and tender before you, Lord, that is the kind of heart you desire. A broken and contrite heart you will not despise. And may we bring that kind of heart before you. For, Lord, there's cleansing and there's forgiveness. And, Father, I pray on the other side of that there would be a great resolve. There would be an I will kind of spirit coupled with an understanding that we need you. Thank you, Father, for your word. And we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.